just get right down to business. The Joe Roberts Show. This, this is The Joe Roberts Show. The Joe Roberts Show. The Joe Roberts Show. On today's show, we have Rich Sanders, the co-founder, lead investigator, and principal at Cypherblade. Rich is an expert cryptocurrency tracer and cybercrime investigator with experience working in partnership with governments on hundreds of cases. He's also a lead investigator at Cypherblade Investigative Agency and Security Firm. A day in Rich's life will often include coordinating AML-related activities between cryptocurrency exchanges or consulting with attorneys as an expert witness. Rich, thanks for coming on today. Why don't we start by kind of giving us a little bit about your background. Thanks for having me. So lead investigator with Cypherblade. Cypherblade is most well-known as a blockchain analysis and cryptocurrency investigations company. We're most well-known, I would say, as the 911 for scam and hack investigations. We also provide services to funds and exchanges doing like source of funds audits and the sort, but we are definitely most well-known for scam and hack investigations. Well, that's awesome. So, So how does one get into this line of work? I'm still uh, working on a good answer for that. So <laughs> yeah, we, we've um, ever since we launched the company about three years ago, we've been really kind of right in the playbook alongside companies like Chainalysis on how to do these kinds of investigations. The reality is right now, there's no like good college to go major in something in particular. I would say probably the best bet if one is looking to get into this line of work, if they don't have like law enforcement or compliance direct experience, would be to try to get into like a junior compliance role for a cryptocurrency exchange. Did you have a hack occur to you that kind of prompted the start of the company or what was it that had you start? Well, not a hack that occurred to me personally, but I did have some friends of mine that experienced hacks and they were you know, higher net worth individuals. So I knew off the time, based upon knowledge I had of law enforcement, there were certain things that could be done. This was like late 2016, early 2017. And at that time I had realized, yeah, there's no company in the space doing this kind of stuff. You have companies like Chainalysis that, that are creating these awesome tools, but there's no company that's actually doing investigations to the service. And that's effectively how Cypherblade became what it is. It just realized that there was nothing in the space doing it. So you guys started back in 2017? 2018, actually. Okay. And can you kind of maybe break down maybe one of your first cases and kind of how that went? So I'll have to be a little vague because yep. we can't share specific details of specific cases. But um, one of the earlier cases that is at least somewhat public domain is that there was a basically this group of people that were doing social engineering saying that they had like allocations to like private sales. This was like kind of on the tail end of the ICO bubble. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Th- that was a big thing. And basically they ended up either sending fake tokens or just never sending anything at all. And these people got screwed out of like thousands of ETH at the time. Got it. I remember back then, especially like the spring of 18, as we were kind of coming off the tail end there, a lot of people were scrapping different types of allocations. So who comprises of the team currently? So that's something else I have to be a little mum about. And I'll just answer and say that we're uh, we're distributed uh, among the world. And that definitely has its benefits. I mean, it's a little bit easier reach into different jurisdictions, but also based upon the nature of the work we do, the blockchain never sleeps. So it's good to have people that are working all different times. What type of background experience does someone have to have to join the team? There's, yeah, this is kind of what I was alluding at earlier when I said there's no cookie cutter profile, yeah, at least not yeah. yet. You know, folks that have investigative background doesn't necessarily have to be law enforcement. Those have been some of the stronger candidates. That or folks that have like experience working with an exchange and a compliance role. And really the reason for that is that if you're working for, let's say, a cryptocurrency exchange in an AML role, you might be using some of the same tools that blockchain analysts use. So, And did you guys self-fund this to get started? Did you guys raise a round? We're all bootstrap. Nice. Never took external funding. So right from the get-go, you had customers kind of come on board and you were able just to bootstrap the whole way. Yep. It's been absolutely insane ever since then. There's always been far more 
demand than there is supply. And some in business might say that's a good problem to have. But you know, I really do truly hope that does change because when the day finally comes, more people come to Cypherblade before the fact instead of after the fact, then I can tell you the industry's finally grown up. All right. So why don't we go into that? Like before the fact, kind of explain that and break that down. What would someone do to come before? So that depends if it's an individual or a business. I'll kind of give some general examples that apply to both. Yeah, take the adequate time to understand. But let's move away from fraud first. Let's focus just on hacks because that's a little bit easier to get down with here. When it comes to baseline cybersecurity, following instructions. I mean, look, here's your hardware wallet. They come with booklets. They say, write this down. It doesn't say type this into Google Docs and store it on Gmail. It doesn't say take a picture of it on your phone. And look, I'm not saying this to victim shame anyone, but keeping your cryptocurrency secure is not terribly complicated for most people. Now, there are ultra high net worth individuals and there are ultra um, wealthy exchanges and funds in the store. And that gets more nuanced. You might want to split your seat up and so on. But for the average person, securing your cryptocurrency is not terribly complicated. So what do you think are maybe like the top three best practices for the regular user? I would say the number one, and this is a very broad question, so I'm going to get some very broad answers. I'm going to focus this one on fraud and not hacks, which is, you might know this for sure to be able to confirm it, but as far as I'm aware, there's never been a time in the history of Bitcoin where if you just held on to it for four years, you weren't in profit. Yeah. <laughs> Don't get greedy. I mean, like people lose so much money to like these rugs or like the less sophisticated scams, and these happen all the time, but definitely in the bull markets, this cloud mining or this trader from Telegram or Twitter or whatever, just hold on to your Bitcoin. Don't entrust your Bitcoin with somebody else. If you're going to entrust your Bitcoin with somebody else, make sure you have a damn good reason. You know, if you want to use a service, for example, like Celsius to get some interest, risk reward that. Don't put everything into there. At least they've gotten an audit, which is more than some of their competitors could say. So that would definitely be number one. Number two, follow instructions. I mean, again, if you're going to take all this time, there's these folks that's been hours every week discussing price in the next moonshot and you know what is 15 minutes to follow the instruction on setting up a hardware wallet right so proportionality within within time expenditure is a huge thing three you're really making me think hard on this because it's only three i would say focus on not making yourself a target right i mean like not everyone needs to know that you hold cryptocurrency or exactly what you hold or exactly what your exchange accounts are. Yeah, you know, don't blast that out there. You know, you, you don't need to flex about your cryptocurrency holdings. That's not to say again, like that's they're inviting criminals and to excuse criminal activity. That's not what I'm saying, but why make yourself a target at all? That's interesting. Yet yeah, some other flexing how much they have, or some people are posting their Ethereum wallet address and all the giveaways on Twitter, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Oh, those threats always make me cringe. And like, I've noticed like other folks, and this might be a good sign of the industry maturing even just a tiny bit compared to like 2017. But I see it now. And on the rare times I go on Twitter, people are calling it out. This is horrible for privacy. And it is. I agree. So when it comes to your clients, are they typically made up of the regular investor or more on the institutional side? Kind of what's the makeup? Who do you guys work with the most? It's a lot of both. I wouldn't be able to tell you statistics off the top of my head, but exactly what you described are definitely huge, huge parts of our customer basis. So like on the individual side, you might have folks where they had, let's say, more lax cybersecurity or they fell for some of the more common scams or like the pig butchering scams, the Shazu pans, I think they're called, which are like kind of like the, the romance scams, you know, somebody they meet on Tinder or Facebook. <laughs> oh, really? That's interesting. In the crypto space. Mm-hmm. Well, what's interesting about those is that they're a lot more involved than the like Nigerian romance scams. Those are the ones where they're typically directing folks to like a Bitcoin ATM. It tends to be losses in like maybe like a few thousand dollars to like 
maybe the the mid to high five figure range. Very rarely do those go over six figures. But the pig butchering scams, and the way that they actually came up with that name apparently is like it has something to do with they would fatten up the pig before slaughtering it. So like they're very methodical about this. Like Chinese authorities raided this one dude's house and he had like a whole guide on it. It's like, yeah, you have to groom the person and like they they will do this for months. And those are the romance scams that are getting people for like several hundred thousand dollars, half mil. Like those are not cheap losses. So typically what is the average loss in which someone's trying to recover when they come to you? I wouldn't say there's an average because there's a massive disparity, right? So like you might have your individual that lost a few hundred thousand dollars. We, we've also had like trading desks that come to us that lost tens of millions. So, so there's a definitely a huge disparity there. What I can say is that we can't take cases that are less than a hundred thousand dollars in loss. And that's for several reasons. Our costs would just probably not make that worthwhile. But the biggest reason is that law enforcement is probably not going to take any action. So it wouldn't be ethical of us to sell services knowing that. And so do you guys work on a commission base or how do you guys take on clients? So we do charge for our time. We also charge a contingency. So that's another one of the top questions we get is, you know, can you work only contingency? And when there's more people that are willing to pay us up front than uh, we could possibly service, that answer is a flat no. Gotcha. So if someone's looking, you know, has gone through a problem like this, what are some expectations on what they might expect to pay time-wise outside the contingency or include both? I think the best bet that, that I can give to answer that would be that they could email the company just because it's a very case by case type of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have some situations where what we'll do is we'll, you know, whenever somebody emails us, we ask for the transaction data and we do a preliminary analysis. And we might say, you know what, dude, sorry, like it went to Tornado Cash. It looks like they have good OPSEC. Like we can't do anything <laughs> for you. We might have some situation where it's pretty simple. You know, it goes to this Nigerian exchange. It's not much analysis. We quit a lower retainer. We might have something that's kind of in between where like, you know, funds went to Binance, who will be at OKX. And that's kind of somewhere in the middle. Depends how many intermediaries. It just, it's really a time-based retainer is what we're going to provide an estimate for. Cool. And so do you guys have like, uh, relationships across the world with like, how do you get with all the authorities to kind of solve these cases when they kind of go to all these different exchanges in different jurisdictions? Well, I think the other important thing is we also, in addition to the relationships with the authorities, have relationships with almost all the exchanges. I say almost all because you're always going to have your, your kind of problem children. Yep. Um, yeah. Not talking about who will be your OKX, but totally talking about who will be an OKX. <laughs> uh, but notwithstanding that, I mean, we, we have contacts with pretty much every single major cryptocurrency exchange and, and swap service and the sort. When it comes to authorities at this point, you know, we, we've been operating for well over three years now. We've got contacts in most jurisdictions. And the ones we don't, our experience is even if we're just coming at them cold saying, hey, we got a victim in your jurisdiction. Yeah, you know, we've done this report. And the way law enforcement yeah, somebody in law enforcement described it really well once, at least in my opinion, which is you came to us with this report, which is like the case in a nice little box with a ribbon on it that said, please open me. I did all the work. That's basically what we do for law enforcement. We, we do everything shy of issue subpoenas and you know seizure warrants and stuff that we just absolutely can't do, but we do everything else for them. And they tend to like that because a lot of them tend to not be as experienced in the space. So can you walk us through briefly like you know what the process would look like in a sample transaction that kind of occurred before? The process to investigate such a transaction? Yeah, yeah. Like if someone lost, so they'd submit to you basically what happened, all the transaction data, and then you guys do an initial underwriting. And kind of from there, you can, well, lovely explain, but how do you kind of determine if you'll take on the case and how long it might take? Or It really depends upon what we see in that preliminary analysis. And that's why I hit those couple of examples earlier. There's some situations where we're just going to say flat out, like this does not make sense to engage us for. We are going to decline. Those situations are... It really depends upon the case. That, that is unfortunately pretty common in DeFi. 
it really depends upon the sophistication of the hacker. And it really, like, depending upon the typology, you'll even notice upon certain things that'll happen too. So, like, ransomware, depending upon the particular group, they have certain services, certain mixers they like to use. Yeah, I could tell you where all your Nigerian romance scammers, the exchanges they're going to use. I, I could tell you the top list for that off the top of my head. So, it, it really is very situational. But, you know, if it does look like there's, for example, funds that might go to a KYC exchange, that is a promising lead, in which case we will provide a retainer estimate. So some hacks, if they, let's say they were able to get crypto, they send it to one wallet and it just is sitting there, right? I mean, I assume you, you may not be able to do nothing until it moves. So kind of what is the average length of time that you may take to usually solve these cases if it's on average? Those are both great questions. I want to answer one by one. <laughs> if funds are sitting in a wallet, that is a massive, it depends. And I get that question a pretty good bit because there are uh, quite a few folks that come to us immediately after it happens, which is smart. It could be either extremely good or extremely bad. I, I will say that it is better to come to a company like ours if funds are just sitting in that wallet instead of ending up in exchange because there's some things we can do. We can, for example, work with companies like Chainalysis, get those addresses labeled into their system, and any like exchanges that are utilizing that tool will automatically flag it. We can also share the addresses with all the exchanges in our network. We're members of Crypto Defenders Alliance. So it's very possible to get funds intercepted, which actually, that's a lot better for a victim of a fraud or a theft because then they don't have to look at a, a months or even years long process, right? If an exchange intercepts funds, then yeah, working with law enforcement, that could be returned sometimes in a matter of weeks. So that answers that part of it. And then the other thing was about case lifecycle, which I have to give a less fun answer on, which is, again, it depends. <laughs> it really depends on case. I mean, we've had situations where we open an investigation and somehow it's resolved, you know, because exchange is intercepting funds or the perpetrator decides to, to check it out, which is pretty rare. But those are a little bit more on the rare side. These things are lengthy processes. You know, you're dealing with law enforcement, you're dealing with the legal system, and, and that could take... You're looking at, in a lot of cases, year, year and a half sometimes. And that kind of just, yeah, you know, crypto might move fast, but government doesn't. So when you say like takes their time, is that like, so if they steal something and place it in a wallet, like they might get shy because they think they're going to get caught and then they don't do anything for years or something, or they just kind of leave it there? Have you seen that? It's rare. That does happen. If you see something like that, it's usually because the amount of the asset. So like you'll see that like with exchange hacks. Really well-known examples like Bitfinex funds. Like I think a lot of people on Twitter have been following those wallets for years just because it's a little bit more tricky to, to launder that quantity of coin relative to other things. Whereas like, you know, if you have somebody that pilfered you know, some high five-figure, low six-figure amount, they're less likely to sit on it for an extended period of time. And you mentioned the Crypto Defenders Alliance. What does that organization kind of do? So it's one of the, uh, the few... <laughs> I guess you could say active self-regulatory organizations within the industry. In short, what they do is they're an organization that has representatives from most major cryptocurrency exchanges and InstaSwap services and yeah, merchant services as well, like the ones where it's, you can basically pay using crypto like it's a credit card. Then you'll have companies like Chainalysis or Elliptic or Crystal that are also in there. The whole point of it is like, hey, um, for example, I'm running an exchange. One of my customers got hacked. You know, rather than just tell them too bad, so sad, go file with law enforcement, I could actually take that data, fuse it into this group. I'm obviously not going to name the customer from a compliance perspective and say, hey, you know, we had a customer get hacked and their funds were withdrawn here. Then all the other exchanges will block list that address, which means that if they receive funds from it, they automatically are going to freeze it. That that's kind of the long and short intent of the group. Is there any opportunity to where you kind of outsource any part of this for bounties be able to pay other people to assist or is it pretty much always just something internally housed that you guys do 
Yeah, I'm, I'm not shut off to exploring that more in the future. But the whole issue with the bounty work is that really even just throwing aside that the $100,000 threshold I was talking about earlier is that you're essentially placing any income that you get upon the actions of people that don't work for you. So like, it's not a very appetizing <laughs> position to be in professionally where it's like, I am relying upon the government to take steps that I can't force them or compel them to do. I don't think anybody wants to be in that position. If they do, power to them. But if that was a viable route, I think that we would probably have several competitors doing that by now. All right. Well, let's get into, can you guys track privacy coins such as Monero and Zcash? No. And anybody saying they can is lying to you. And can you maybe explain it in, in simple terms, why you can't? I'll just keep it to Monero. And the reason I'll say that is that I, I won't get into the whole Monero Zcash debate. Yeah. I, I'm sure there's tons of content on that all over Twitter or, or 4chan biz or anywhere you, you turn your head these days. Those communities are seemingly at war. But I'll focus on Monero and I'll just say that Monero is absolutely best in class for privacy coins. So that's that part of the question. As far as whether it can or can't be traced, there were certain Monero transactions during a certain period of time that could be, depending upon if there were information from certain exchanges. I mean, you're talking such a fraction of a fraction of a percent, but that's not a tracing capability. That That's more like a you have several data points pre-existing. Notwithstanding that, there is no way to trace Monero and to keep it in a very, very simple answer. Right now, when you're looking at blockchain analysis, you're looking at hard data. You're not looking at, it is a probabilistic percent that this address received from this transaction. With the what I've heard of Monero tracing capabilities, even just that element is probabilistic. I can't rely on that, whether as an expert investigator or like an expert witness in court, I would get destroyed, rightfully so, under cross-examination for that. So. Got it. I got it. Yeah. So, because the US government does have out some bounty or something with chain analysis or somebody, right? Didn't they put out something like they're offering like 600,000 or something if someone could kind of break that? Which is kind of an insulting amount if you think about <laughs> it. <laughs> I mean, like that amount of money to crack Monero. Like, I saw that. Like, look, you know, I get that they have limited budgets and they got to do what they got to do. But if they were actually going to throw, if they were throwing a three digit million amount of money at the problem, I would actually, if I was in Monero's position, be concerned. But at the resources I've seen thrown at it, I'm not holding my breath. I mean, I don't think it's the biggest concern in the world at the moment, right? So can we hit on maybe what has been one of the most complex cases you had to solve and kind of why was it the most complex? So cases can be complex in several different ways. They could be complex insofar as who the perpetrators are and jurisdictions they could be complex insofar as the blockchain analysis portion. And I'll go with the blockchain analysis portion because that, that's pretty much what, what the content here is going to be focused on, I'm sure. Probably some of the more complex ones, and I won't provide a specific case, but I will provide an example that applies to several cases, is um, cases that involve confirmed or suspected DPRK execution. And what I mean by that is that they have very sophisticated means of attack. I mean, it's known that they're behind a lot of ransomware, but they're also behind a lot of like malware, API key compromises, that sort of thing. So, so that's one of the thumbprints. But from the blockchain analysis perspective, it is a jungle of, I mean, they utilize, I've seen them make their own proprietary mixer. They have Chinese OTCs, which is a really interesting topic. A lot of these services that they're utilizing are, are definitely turning a blind eye, who will be an OKX in particular. So there's a lot of very, very interesting things on that front. And untangling all that can really become a mess, right? Because you might have, for example, a US-based OTC that legitimately doesn't know any better. And they're dealing deals with these Chinese OTC. That Chinese OTC is telling the US OTC, oh, we're clean, but they're totally turning a blind eye to their source of funds. So 
So when it comes to like a man hours on a case, that's the type of stuff, activity that takes the most amount of time. That can definitely bog you down. And that's kind of an unfortunate lay of the land is you do have to explore those connections, right? Because if it was the case that one of these OTCs was knowingly receiving funds from a ransomware distributor, then that would obviously be very bad. But getting any information on counterparties and transactions like that is definitely a time-consuming process. I'm sure a lot of the listeners have heard over maybe the last couple of years of different ransoms for Bitcoin through US private or public companies, whatever, in the news. Can you kind of explain that, what kind of happens there and what the process looks like? Just to clarify, you're talking about ransomware specifically, or are you referencing like kidnappings or... Ransomware. Gotcha. Right, where they're requesting the data for Bitcoin, right? So I mean, those cases, they definitely have spiked significantly over the past year, actually so much so to the point where ransomware is now considered to be a national security priority. And the resources that are being thrown at it definitely reflect that. In my opinion, it's far too little and it's far too late. We should have seen this years ago, but that's you know, no use crying over spilt milk at this point. There are at least now actions that reflect it being a significant priority. So like what happened recently with SUEX is a great example of that. My firm's been saying for a very long time that nested services, particularly with exchanges like Binance, are an issue or OTCs with certain exchanges are an issue. And sure enough, I'm sure anybody that read up on SUEX uh, could probably connect the dots there. And I think that's the, the start of something that's going to be much bigger. I think I assume as the price of Bitcoin goes up and more companies are holding Bitcoin on the, their balance sheet and publicly, that's more of a, a known attack for them to go after, right? Well, absolutely. And yeah, criminals are going to be criminals regardless, right? Bitcoin could go to $1 and I, <laughs> I could still see ransomware payments being demanded because they're just going to ask for the equivalent in Bitcoin. That being said, you know, if Bitcoin continues to go up in price, then you know, a company that holds 1,000 Bitcoin is a hell of a lot more attractive target if Bitcoin is $100,000 versus $1. Now, if anybody has a company and they're attacked, I mean, what should they do? I mean, who are they calling first and what's that process look like? So if it's just a cyber attack, the first thing they should do is they should, it's almost a tie between immediately file a law enforcement report. If you're in the US, file an IC3, but it's not the kind of thing where like you can call 911 and they're going to do anything to help you. Um, <laughs> so, so after you get that IC3 in, you would want to contact a company like mine. Yeah, I, I often get these questions, what can I do? Like what, what would they do if not hiring a company like ours? And really besides give good information to law enforcement, there's really nothing they can do. I've seen tons of folks that try to investigate their own cases. They end up wasting a ton of time and frustrating themselves. And yeah, if you are going to go for an investigation, have professionals do it. All right. And then any other best practices from a security standpoint to mention? In addition to what I said earlier about follow the instructions, you know, get the hardware wallet. You can get them for like 50 bucks. They're not terribly expensive. Yeah, put the fraction of a fraction of a percent of the time and money into your security as you do your cryptocurrency. You can't go wrong from there, right? When it's phrased that way, when it's like, look, dude, you're spending hours per week talking about price and researching trading strategies. And you really put it into that, that kind of scale where it's like, this is literally a fraction of a percent of your time just to follow instructions to protect for what a lot of people really is their life savings. That tends to be eye-opening. And what is your plans? Kind of what's your personal goals with Cypherblade over the next few years? What are you guys doing? How are you looking to grow? So Cypherblade has grown far more in three years than, than I ever would have thought possible. <laughs> I almost hate to say that because it just it has zero sense of being humble in it, but it's past the point of good problem to have. And what I would like to do with Cypherblade is really enact some change in the industry. It is actually of detriment to our business if less people come to us for these investigations, but that is actually what we want. We want to see this industry succeed. 
what I could see Cypherblade being a vehicle for is to say, look, here's the right way to do things. You know, if you're an exchange, have a solvency audit. If you're a trading desk, here's the, the proper way to secure your API keys. If you're the end user, here is how to do proper due diligence and not lose your funds to, to this you know, fake Forex trader or whatever the case might be. So that's what I'm hoping to accomplish with Cypherblade. Minimize the crime, but it'll always be there. So you're not going out of business, that's for sure. Unfortunately, you're probably right. Um, I'm usually the pessimist that holds that view. There are folks that tell me maybe one day it is possible to enact that high level of change. And honestly, I disagree with them, but I want them to prove me wrong. That's good. From uh, you know, listeners or investors, I guess two parts. One, if they're kind of looking to invest in maybe other funds out there to manage their capital, is there anything they should be looking at from a security standpoint when they're kind of doing some due diligence on those funds? That's a great question because that could take the form of are they doing in-kind? Are they doing ETF? As a general rule, I think one thing, this is something the industry could improve upon is that there should be, and you see a lot of this in DeFi, right? Which is like, oh, this smart contract audit was done by this firm. I think that when it comes to like funds in the sort, if there was a way for it, this doesn't need to even be invented. It could just be a thing that's done. Hey, this cybersecurity firm checked our security and they gave us a pass. So some type of industry standard there that does exist to an extent for cryptocurrency exchanges. They, they do have standards there for security. So I think the same thing being done for funds would be pretty healthy there. For now, what can folks look for? I would say the best bet is for folks to educate themselves on, you know, basic stuff. What is a private key? And if they're talking to one of these funds and they don't know baseline key management, I personally wouldn't send my money to them. Now, on the other side, if you're actually a fund, right? You know, there's different services and different cold storage providers. I mean, it's kind of a newer industry. How are you appropriately underwriting these different vendors to choose which one to use for your fund? Really depends upon, obviously, the particular vendor and what the need is. I think the issue I've seen more of is not vendor selection, but but utilizing a vendor at all, if I'm being candid. Like, yeah, a lot of these companies are are the ones that are like, oh, I'm going to pour everything I have into my trading balance or, yeah, depending upon the type of a company, marketing. But yeah, the issue, it's not so much vendor selection. It's the procurement whatsoever. So I would say we need to cross that bridge first before we can answer the question. No, I agree. I mean, I think and that, that has dramatically changed since 2017. I mean, 17, 18 was pretty much all everyone was on ledgers, you know, in their office pushing the buttons, right? And I think at least these days, we are using a lot more of the custodians, exchanges or storage providers. So it's kind of been a pretty big shift. So I mean, I don't know, let's, I think we covered everything. I mean, what is there left that we haven't covered that you kind of want to highlight? I would just reiterate again, please take the time to actually understand this tech. Whether it's for, you know, actually understanding what you're investing in, you know, it's very common with, with folks that have been in stocks for decades and decades now to understand the companies you're slinging money at. Really, the same thing should apply to digital assets. And really, if people put a proportionate amount of time and money into protecting their assets and making those types of choices, they wouldn't lose their lunch. You know, this is a lot of folks are, are new to this. The same thing in 2020, 2021 that we saw in 2017. They hear about it on CNN. They hear about it at the office water cooler. They want to be like everyone else that got rich quick off of Bitcoin. This isn't a get rich quick thing anymore. Yeah, it, it's still promising. I'm not providing any financial advice by saying this, but if you do believe in the tech on a fundamental level, get your assets, you know, custody them responsibly, whether it's you're going to get a hardware wallet or use a service, and just don't fuss about it. You know, there's not anybody that whether it's a cartoon chicken on Twitter or somebody that makes a living selling BlockFi affiliate links or whatever, nobody really has your best interests in mind. You got to look out for yourself. That's in life as general rule, right? Yep. So we always have to leave off with a final question here. And what is the, maybe the biggest thing you have implemented in your life that has helped increase your net worth? Not doing 
unpaid pre-engagement phone calls. As probably <laughs> unconventional of an answer as that sounds, now that I'm thinking about it, it's definitely been the number one thing for the business. And I think that's been for net worth, the, the top thing. If people can't articulate what needs to be articulated in a brief email, then there's no point of the phone call, especially in the line of work that I do, which is, yeah, a phone call is just going to be, I need your transaction data. So, Or create a quick Loom video of what's going on on your screen and send it off, right? Yeah. What about your... What's been mine? Ah, uh, geez, that's a good question. <laughs> I haven't had anybody. That is a tough one to answer. That's going to be for a loop. I haven't had anybody ask. So far, I guess the two things that prompted me over the last 10 years has been when I had a sole focus in one area of work, right? In one area of work. And then two, participating and also residing in Puerto Rico and being conscious of taxes over a long period of time. Those definitely sounds like things that would add up. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? The compound interest is good, but you also got to make sure that you kind of strategize on how you pay your taxes. And then, you know, I think ultimately, if you focus like you are in one area, one thing for a period of time, you'd be surprised of how, how far that could grow. That's definitely true. There, there was a time in my life where I tried to be a, a complete jack of all trades and had a <laughs> nine to five and a side hustle. And what I'm doing now is a really niche and it's a lot more efficient. Yeah. And for the investors listening, sometimes in crypto, that's something to think about is that there's we're starting to expand in many different areas and you could get thrown off and read Twitter. You could be investing in DeFi, NFTs, gaming, everything. You know, It's probably best pick a sector, build some expertise around that. And there's plenty of money you can deploy in just one area that if you're an expert at, you'll be good. You don't need to be all over the place. Absolutely. There's a lot of folks that try to over-diversify and that's exactly what I was referencing <laughs> earlier, which is they don't understand what they're slinging money at. So. Exactly. All right, Rich. What's the best way for people to get a hold of you or if they have a need for your service? I would tell them to contact HQ at cypherblade.com. All right. Well, that's cool. That's easy. Thanks for coming on today and sharing that with us. Thanks for having me. The Joe Roberts Show.